Hi, my guest today is Bessley Donaldson. The reason I'm speaking like this at the moment is because the stuff we were doing in the green room beforehand was really good, so I just started the recording from there. So that's why it sounds a little hiccupy at the beginning. Please forgive me. Hope you enjoy. It's still one thing, but in six months' time, you want people to have done, said, and talk, talked about. Or what, based on this conversation, deep listening is the thing. Hmm? Deep listening. <laughs> resist. <laughs> Might have to do that for the promo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Excellent. <laughs> okay. What are the typical blind spots people have with listening? And how what, how do they confuse uh, the two? Yeah, cool. And listening and deep listening. Or, and actually hearing what people say. It's to do with that whole thing of active listening. I think we've all been sold a kid for about active listening. And that's really, gets in the way, basically, is the big one. Um, thinking that they've got to... Um, nodding at the right place and saying, mm, and you know, all that kind of, it, it's all of that stuff, especially salespeople have been, you know, sold a kipper, told the wrong way to do it. It just all gets in the way. And active listening is like the enemy of deep listening, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And structure. So it's interesting because you said you've moved away from Sandler because of, of having an interesting topic maybe for us to talk about, that whole keeping a structure in your mind when you're interacting with somebody. I would say now that just gets in the way. Having a framework of trying to see where you are in that structure and you're leading them through a structure, that, yeah, I would, I would probably be quite controversial now and say that I feel like that, that just gets in the way and we're better to just be open and just see what comes up. And, and having a structure in the background that we've probably known and it will come out anyway, it will guide us anyway because it's in there, but it doesn't need to be something we're thinking through in the moment. Is it really more about being prepared and having a plan so that you know if there are unasked questions, you need to go back and ask them. That's all. Um, yeah. Yeah, if, if you need to talk about budget or decision or mobilisation or engagement or whatever, talk about it. But if now is not appropriate, talk about it when it is. Yeah, exactly. Or, so so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Other blind spots. Yeah, thinking that listening and being a good listener being able to like regurgitate what someone said or haven't you know have an answer ready or have your next question ready and it to be almost like a competition of who can get in there and you know and thinking that that space is a problem as well people are afraid of, of space and silence and kind of looking looking prepared and looking you know that whole thing of yeah, we talked about doing it like Colombo, you know, like being prepared and being impressive actually isn't what, what connects us with people. It's actually being, yeah, we'll be prepared, but we don't have to be impressive. We can be just, in, you know, that interesting versus interested. That's a big blind spot for people. There's just so much of it about, especially in sales. People just think that there's one way and it's a flashy salesman, know it all, kind of and confident, you know, that overconfident. Actually, it can be a turn-off for people. Well, more often than not, it is. I mean, the, the, the problem I see is that often your agenda doesn't coincide, align, or serve the customer. And if you start trying to implement that agenda, they're naturally going to push back. And why the hell wouldn't you? Yeah. One more blind spot if you have one. Needy versus creepy. So this is a Steve Chandler. So... Uh, needy is creepy sorry needy is creepy so yeah just what you've just said there so having an agenda wanting to get something and it just being repellent so when we're trying to get a, a an outcome or obviously if we're trying to sell and we're feeling needy about getting the sale that just gets in the way and when we're just open to see what happens whether it's a sale or not whether it's just a connection with somebody then that takes all of that away it's just a, about connecting selling is just connecting really and there's another one as well, which is about assessing versus connecting. Assessing? Yeah, assessing versus connecting. So in sales and leadership and parenting, when we're assessing whether we think this is right or wrong, is it what we wanted? We're not connecting. We're deciding. We're, make, we're making judgments about 
what's going on. Is am I am I where I want to be on my process? Is this person a good fit for me? Is my child doing what I want? Well, actually, all of that thinking just gets in the way of actually just pure connection. And when we do connect, it's like magic happens, doesn't it, with other people? And then they feel heard. They feel, and then often the result we want will happen anyway. Certainly with children, they'll just be compliant because they feel loved basically in that moment. There was a very interesting piece I saw at the weekend, which I shared, um, and it was around, uh, or was it last weekend? It might have been last weekend. My time just com- yeah. compounds. And it was the exercise where you got to try and build a tower out of spaghetti, paper clips, and sellotape. And the MBA students managed 10 inches and the kindergarten is 26. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and the paper suggested that it was down to the MBA students worrying more about status management and trying to work out how not to look foolish, whereas oh, the yeah. kids just threw themselves in and said, fuck it, that didn't work, let's try something else. Well, they oh, yeah. didn't say, fuck it, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> true. Yeah. Definitely. It depends which TikToks you've been watching. But yeah, it's um, it's just bizarre how constrained. Because who was I was talking to? I was talking to Moed this morning, and he was saying that his favorite clients are the ones that are quite cerebral, probably come from a technical degree, and they've sort of fallen into sales. And they what they want is explanations as to why they're doing this, and they're not getting that from the others, which are all fluff and all that other shit. And uh, he said the biggest problem that they've got is that they overthink because rejection for them means a rejection of um, something they hold close with, to their identity, which is being right and being clever and being the brightest person in the room, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It's like, it's like a disease. So, so you know, if, if we've done well when we're younger, especially, um, and then at uni or whatever and excelled and been, uh, you know, successful academic, always done well. It is very hard for that not to become a sort of identity level thing where that's almost where people get their self-esteem from. And then the whole idea I love to explore is like, what if there's no, there's nothing there anyway? This idea you've got about self, what if that's just a made up idea? What if it doesn't even exist? So what are the questions people should be asking, but they're not around listening? People really should be asking, well, the best way to learn how to listen is to experience deep listening with someone. So whether it's me or, or, or someone else, just to get into a conversation with somebody that has got an idea of what this is, to experience it. That's how I've, that's mostly how I've started to see what it is. And then the other question is, so it's a question that people should be asking about how to get better at it or how to understand what this is. Yeah, yeah, really. The objective is to hold up the ugly and say, this is you, and this is a better way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can certainly talk through a way to tap into this state of deep listening or this embodied listening, which just to sort of briefly could call it heart-centered listening. A few ways of doing it. The easiest one, I think, to explain to people is just to imagine that your your favorite singer is singing your favorite song, they're singing it to you, and you're the only person in the room. How are you listening to that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good Or you could say the person in your life that you love to listen to, that you would always hang off for every word, or, or even just a famous person. Who would it be for you that you, if they were talking and you were there and you were in person, there'd be nothing else in the room. You would be utterly focused on that person and everything's like time would stop still. Or it could be when you first held your child, you know, as a newborn baby and you know, we went to see a puppy yesterday that we're going to get, and we held the puppy. You know, t- you tear up. It's like, oh. So obviously, the puppy's just sort of. But I'm totally engrossed in that. That is heart-centered listening, and that capability is there all the time for all of us with anyone. If the person at the grocery shop, we can listen to them like that if we choose to. But we're just busy-minded, and we don't really. First of all, we just don't know what it is. So that's something which comes from, I think it's called the University of Santa Monica. And one of my coaches, Anne Cush, has been working with Steve Hardison, who's, who talks about that. So that people can look those, those resources up. So do you think okay. the, the, the newborn baby and the puppy is probably the one that's most people can relate? Again, it depends, it depends on what the individual. I mean, I've got 
a slightly weird sense that there are very, very few people um, who I would be that enraptured by. Um, I mean, someone like Richard Feynman, yeah, but I really struggle to think mm-hmm. of people like that. But mm-hmm. it, it's fair. There are certain people who capture mm-hmm. your attention. I remember seeing a guy called George Zalaki uh, when I was in my network marketing days back years back. So this was 1987, and I still remember the event. It was two days, and he sat on this high stool in the center of the stage, and he held the room of 1,200 people and wrapped it for two days. You could hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, all you could hear was the scratching of pens on paper, and people were glued. They were listening. Um, they were fully engaged at the breaks. There was this incredible buzz. That ability to captivate and to pay that much attention yeah. and to create the conditions where someone wants to pay that sort of attention. Mm. Yeah. And that's what I think great selling is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's great storytelling. It's knowing the timing of when to introduce yeah. a particular concept or to challenge. And it's not. I was talking to one of my partners this morning and he described what I do as pious. And I thought, oh dear God. Um, <laughs> but he said that and most people would see piety as being something surface level for most people. You know, it's this sort of faux piety. But when he was referring to the work that we do, it's about recognizing what's right and what's wrong mm. and jumping on what's wrong immediately and without compromise. It's not personal. It just needs to be stopped. That sort of level of piety, which I think sometimes can make you appear to be a little bit callous Mm -hmm. uh, or harsh. And that isn't the intent. It's Mm -hmm. just what's wrong or what's right. And that's clear. And it's not a choice when you reach that level of understanding. Yeah, I get what you mean. And, and, And what comes up for me about that is that when we see something like Say, for example, we catch we catch ourselves judging or we catch somebody else judging or, or something like that. We can jump on that. As long as it's done with love in rapport, it's actually a service. And, yeah, as long as we've got that sort of high level of connection with that person and we've kind of, I guess, with permission, depending on the scenario, yeah, I think that's, that's love and that's, that's like radical. Radical candor is a book that I've not actually read, but it's been handed to me about that. And actually a lot of people are afraid to, afraid to go there, aren't they, and actually be direct with people but it is a service it's a different style and not everybody likes it nobody wants it but if you're coaching somebody or you're in a, a scenario where that's what they've come to you for then it's like like i think you, you know miss selling to not not do that well, if, i think if you're coaching if you're training if you're managing yeah. if you're leading if you're parenting yeah. and you don't do any of uh, don't do that behavior mm. uh, you do the other person a massive disservice and you become a fool because that's your job you have mm-hmm. a responsibility to do that. I, I think Marie Amin says that you cannot judge and listen at mm-hmm. the same time. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way to introduce you, Bresley. So yeah, yeah. Uh, today, my guest is Bresley Donaldson. She is a transformational coach. Bresley and I worked together, what, about eight, nine years ago, maybe? Yeah. Like that. When were the twins born? Uh, there's six in a few weeks so so it would be a couple of years before that so yeah probably then there you go Uh, so about eight nine years good lord my my sense of timing isn't completely blown (laughs) and at the time Bestie was a recruiter and we were working together because she had some big ambitions and some big personal goals and what was fascinating was just how effective she was at listening and today's episode is all about deep listening we're going to define the difference between listening and deep listening. We're going to explore something rather uh, heretical, which is that active listening gets in the way of deep listening. Learning how to do listening noises like mm, and nodding at the right place is false. It's manipulative. It certainly is not authentic. And it's very clumsy and customers pick up on it and they don't like it because it feels creepy. And there is a significant difference because you come across as being needy and creepy all in one. So, Bessie, welcome. Thank you for having me, Marcus. It's lovely to be here with you. 
it's my pleasure. It's a delight to have you. So the, uh, the boys are what, six? They're nearly six, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Few years. That must have been an entertaining journey. Twins? <laughs> oh, absolutely. But I wouldn't change it for the world and I would highly recommend it. It's, it's great when my friends are having their seconds, you know, and I'm like, no, we're done. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Bob. <laughs> so tell me this then. How did you uh, evolve into this role? Yeah, it was an interesting journey. So about three years ago, I was just coming back after having the boys and thinking about relaunching my recruitment business and um, just went to a a local networking event and met uh, a wonderful coach who lives locally to me called Lizzie Pache, who just seemed to be talking about exactly what I needed. So I started working with her. She introduced me to the three principles or the inside out understanding. Actually, you'd recommended clarity to me many years ago. It's Jamie M. Smart, Michael Neal, and the works of Sid Banks. And I got into that and really just got the bug. And actually, it was life-changing for me. I went from quite stressed out, quite overwhelmed, started to experience peace of mind. My day-to-day experience of life became much more enjoyable and effective. And then lockdown happened and all of that crazy stuff that, that we all lived through. So it was really a case of finding it so rewarding and enjoyable to share this sort of space with people and then just feeling this calling, really. Interesting. Okay. So let's start with the definitions. What is listening, first of all? And then what is deep listening so that we can compare and not confuse the two? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, yeah, obviously listening to people is paying attention, I think, is the the, the first thing. And the reason it's pay is because it is is so valuable. You know, it's a gift when we listen to others. Yeah, yeah, currency, 100%. So... You know, in any in any scenario, when we listen to somebody else, we are validating them, we are empowering them, and obviously it's an essential skill. And then deep listening is something that I've got to admit, I've only really in the last sort of few months really started to understand what that is and experience that in terms of being able to give people the gift of deep listening. But it's listening to just listening just in and of itself it's not listening for a reason it's not listening with any agenda it's not listening to respond or reply or to decide whether what the person is saying is right or wrong it's just giving somebody the gift of hearing them listening and being present and connecting being to being and it's magic it's rare it's beautiful it's almost sacred if I dare say that that's been my experience of it I've not described it as deep listening, but what I see that as is being fully present yeah. in the moment and unattached, unattached to the outcome, yeah. uh, not focused on your own agenda, not worrying about how the other person perceives you, not worrying about what happens next, simply being and being there. Because I think listening is more than uh, the transfer of understanding. I think it's the transfer of emotion. And too often, people are just listening either to gather information or for gaps so that they can fill it with the sound of their own voice. Your thoughts? Oh, I completely agree. And that's not anybody's fault. That's what we've been taught to do. You know, I think we reward talking more than listening. From a young age, you know, putting your hand up in class, getting that attention, being heard. That's almost like how society has set us up to fail in in a sense. What came to mind when you were speaking then, Marcus, was there's another aspect of deep listening, which is that it almost removes the listener from the equation. And it's that's why I said sacred. And it almost opens, it's like a portal opens into the person who's being listened to, to their own wisdom to actually come through when they know they're not going to be interrupted. They know they're not going to be judged. It almost opens them up to, to their own thinking to quiet down wisdom comes through and I've been amazed time and time again as to what actually comes through in those moments and sometimes my clients my husband friends my children even things come out that they say and sometimes clients will say wow where did that come from why did I say that I didn't know that I thought that and it's because they've been heard because they feel safe they're able to actually vocalize something that might even be not be in their conscious thinking could be their subconscious coming through so there's a dimension to it which is truly 
Well, it's deep. It's deep and quite magical. Again, sorry to use it. <laughs> Go a bit woo-woo there. Well, I, I, I get it because what you're describing is a flow state. A flow state feels like a third-party out-of-body experience where there's you and the other person. And I'm delighted that I've learned how to, more often than not, mm-hmm. uh, well, not more often than not, uh, often be able to accomplish that in the course of my selling and my coaching because I've learned the process of staying below the line within the, the model of the drama triangle, which is above the line and then takes you into a place of judgment. It's looking into the future and worrying about what might happen and catastrophizing or dragging old past hurts from the past into the present and re-experiencing the misery all over again and the debilitating effect that has on you. Well, none of that serves you well, and that puts you into the place of the victim. And your natural, the, the next position you take from there is either the persecutor or the rescuer. Now, chances are you're going to go into persecutors. You'll become defensive. And then you end up in World War Three inside of two, there are two sentence exchanges. Mm-hmm. So you want to stay below the line and be fully present in the moment paying attention to the other person fully, no distractions, no emails, no pings, no worrying about supper or the row you're going to have, and just focusing on what they are saying, how they are saying it, and how they are being. And when you do that, then miraculously, you also create space for them to open up, which then raises yet another very interesting question about listening, which is the importance of silence. Would you mind talking to that? Oh, absolutely. It's so important. I was with a a potential client the other day and there was quite a lot of silence. And that's something which I, well, I I was not a friend of silence. I'm sure when we were working together, as soon as you finished speaking, I'd have been straight in. That was my style that, you know, I consider myself fast paced and always got an answer. And now silence plays a huge role in my work. And it's, it's so important. And that There was probably a period where I'd be sitting on my hands a bit and getting used to silence. (laughs) You know, you know, don't jump in, don't jump in. And now it's becoming more and more a way of being that I I know that the silence, it's their silence, it's their time. When someone's really in deep thought and really seeing something and experiencing an insight or a transformation in front of my eyes, it's my practice to jump in and, 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 and break that, you know, break the tension because that is where they're. Yeah, the deep change really comes from it's in that silence. And when then what comes through from that person when they start to speak is often extremely profound. So yeah, I think we've we've been to not like silence, to feel uncomfortable with silence. And yeah, I, I really start, you know, I welcome it as much as possible now. Yeah, and sit on my hands if I need to. <laughs> well, I think one of the challenges is very often we've been taught that. We need to show up and we need to put our best foot forward. But one of the most powerful things I've learned far too late in my career, it must have been 25 years in, you would have thought, was learning how to be vulnerable and being comfortable with being vulnerable. Knowing that it might not work out, knowing that it's a risk, but taking the risk anyway, because I'm happy with the worst case scenario. If the worst case happens, I can live with it. It's not the end of the world. And my ego might take a bit of a beating, but it's not terminal. And what I've found is that actually when I'm deep listening, my ego's not involved. There's no place for my ego. It's like I, I'm not even really involved. It's just, yeah. I don't know if you've heard the lamppost analogy, Michael Neal. I, I just love it. I tell all, all, my, all my clients. He just talks about, it's in The Prosperous Coach, the book, Rich Lipman and Steve Chandler. If you went and spoke to a lamppost about your life every week for an hour, your life would get better. <laughs> the lamppost would be a lot. But isn't there something in that? That when, you know, when we remove ourselves and my ego is not got not, nothing to do here because it's not about me, it's only about the person. It's, um, it's rare and wonderful. Yeah, it is. It's very enjoyable as well, I think, for me and as the listener. It's fascinating when someone gives you that gift and lets you that close because trust is built upon intimacy. Reliability and credibility are table stakes. If you're in 
parenting relationship, if you're in a spousal relationship, if you're in a work relationship, those are table stakes. You expect the person to be able to do what they say they're going to do and do it and not lie about it and to be reliable. But the intimacy, that comes from the vulnerabilities. It comes from eliminating uncertainty and creating the space where someone else can feel vulnerable safely. Yeah. Now, that is a skill. So can we talk to how one does that? Mm. I love what you're saying about being being vulnerable. And I think when we go there first and we're vulnerable, we, we show leadership and we allow the other person to go there. So, I mean, there are different types of coaches or different certifications, et cetera, different, I know the ICF has certain things that you're you know, supposed to do and not supposed to do. I do share stories. I do, you know, I, I, I go there first. If I think it's going to help that person, I'll say, do you mind? I've got a story that speaks to that. And I will be vulnerable and I will show that leadership in, in the call. And then that allows that person to feel safe. That's something that I found very powerful. So the creation of psychological safety starts, I think, with intent. If your intent is to prove a point, score, win, close a deal, advance a sale, get a meeting, get a demo, you're bringing your agenda to someone else's time frame. And if you don't understand that time frame, chances are you're going to have the wrong motion or the wrong form of communication and the wrong attempt at communicating at the wrong time. Mm. So if someone is passively looking, a sales conversation is inappropriate. If someone is actively looking, sending them some basic information is probably way too late. So you need to understand where your buyer is and meet them where they are. So how can listening help us to do that? And can you give us some stories? of how you've been able to navigate complex or difficult conversations by managing those expectations. Mm. Yeah, no, I love what you're saying. I, I think I think that's true. I think listening plays a key role in that. It really depends, yeah, on the situation and the person. I mean, there's something that, that um, I would share from my personal life. This is just a story that happened just before Christmas where we were putting up the Christmas tree. The kids were going crazy. They just were jumping and running all over the place and it was just a bit full on. So I just put them in another room, put a film on and just sat with a cup of tea and just listened to my husband. And he just let it all out of how it was for him. And he got the tree and wanted it to be like this. And he thought, you know, we wanted to be listening to some nice Christmas music and hanging it up together and it being a lovely connecting time. And the boys were just not on that. That wasn't where they were at. So that's a personal example. And then, yeah, in terms of the professional example, something springs to mind. Um, Actually, one of my first ever coaching conversations I had with a possible client, and she was a nurse. And she came on and she'd had a terrible day. She'd just crashed the car. They were going through IVF. She was very emotional. And I didn't know, this was just a referral. I didn't know this person. And really, it was a conversation of, there was no selling. There was pure service. It was just a case of, I'm going to listen and help this person, just human to human, and just to help her get from, total panic mode to just coming down and just calming down and just being open. And, and, and that was what I did. And, and we've had various conversations inside a baby now, which is great news. And there was no selling involved. It's pure service. And that's really the, the path that I take, which feels wonderful. There is no selling. I serve, I listen, I connect. Some people want to talk again. Some people want to pay me. It's great. It, it's all fine. And the quality of the listening, when it does, when it does go there, and it is that real deep quality listening, heart-centered listening. I find that people usually just want to talk again and then they want to work with me. They ask me how much because it's so unusual. And another quick one which comes up actually. So this was a client I used to work with when I was a headhunter. We had a catch-up call a few weeks ago, and it was just to sort of say, hi, what are you up to? And we we got into a conversation about what he's up to in his life. And he he said, "Oh, this this is surprising. What what's this? Is this is this coaching?" I said, "Well, yeah, this is just what just what I do." And so when we 
just go there and quieten down and listen to connect and not listen for any for any reason it's unusual and it people go oh what's that then i want more of it you touched on something which has just sprung to mind here uh, again which is the difference between assessing and mm-hmm. connecting and i think it's appetite to bring it up now because of what you're saying so uh, talk to us about the difference between assessing and connecting yeah so when we're in conversation with somebody and we're trying to decide about it might be um do i like the way my child's behaving right now um are they doing what i've asked them is this person a good prospect for me are they going to buy do i agree where does what they're saying fit with my worldview is it one of my beliefs or not do i agree or disagree have i heard it before can I look in my filing system and find something to relate it to? All of that is assessing. And when we're doing that, we're not in pure connection. We're not deep listening. There is no need for any of that. When we're just connecting, we're, we're just completely open. And then the person will finish speaking. There then may be some silence. And then there may be something to be said. But it isn't a case of responding from a place of, fitted what they've said into my mind somewhere there's no need for that it's just hearing and connecting and people feel that they feel that you haven't got the the were going on they feel that you've just calmed down and you're there just for them yeah it feels very different okay because this touches back on something that we were talking about in the green room uh, which is how making judgments mm-hmm. and this false active listening, yeah. uh, this manipulative a- attempt to try and falsely build rapport mm-hmm. as opposed to genuinely connecting human to human. I'm very interested in the idea of self at this stage because you touched on that when we were uh, planning the call and I'd like to explore that now. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something in the green room saying oh, what's what if your idea of self doesn't exist what did you mean by that and that's probably quite controversial for a lot of people and can be quite a scary idea but you know we like to think of ourselves as you know formed from our experiences and our genetics etc and that there's a self in here usually formed in our teenage years and we like to protect that idea of self and whether it's our beliefs our likes and our dislikes but i don't believe that any of that's fixed and also the idea of a self, what if that's really just a story as well? What if it's just an illusion? Now, none of this can be proved, but if the whole idea of a self is just a made-up story, then we don't have to worry about defending that self. We don't have to compare and contrast other selves with ourselves. And that's quite freeing. And so then there's no need for an ego. There's nothing to defend. We're just pure openness. So that's been a concept that's been quite it's really resonated with me since I've started exploring that. I guess you could call it like non-duality. Um, yeah. How does that sound What to do you? you mean by non-duality? Well, non-duality is the idea that we're all connected and that the separation between individuals is, you know, is, is, is false. So, and yeah, we can go down different routes to, to explore that, whether it's physics, psychology. But yeah, this idea of a of self that is not fixed and that is, is maybe even itself an illusion. Yeah, I find it quite an attractive idea. I suspect it's fixed if you believe it is. Yeah. I maintain that free will is an illusion and only exists in the, the brief glimmers between realising you have none uh, and then making a choice. Because by large, a couple of episodes back, I had Amal Ismail on, and she's a functional um, medicine practitioner. <laughs> And the way she was describing the control that your gut bacteria have over how you feel, your emotions, your uh, responses in the moment, which genes are switched on and off. Then thinking about a lot of the uh, psychological stuff that I've read, the idea that the brain exists in this sort of uh, vacuum and it's got this little connection to the outside world and it's plodding away trying to uh, satisfy itself. and Largely, it's driven by, you know, in the environment, circumstance, and very little of what you do is conscious. Otherwise, we'd spend most of our time, you know, just trying to get out of bed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. So there's so much going on underneath 
Uh, I'd like to explore the whole idea of listening to the self, which is interesting, given that we just said that the self may not exist. So um, <laughs> let's pretend it does. How does one do deep listening with oneself? Yeah, I love that question. It's it's oh, it's just it's a it's a wonderful area to explore. And yeah, I, I think I think it's an it's a bit of an unlearning. It's not a skill to develop. It's innate. You know, this ability to listen to others and listen to ourselves deeply, it's within all of us. It's a process of, for me, it's been trusting that my my wisdom is there and is guiding me. And the more I tune into it and the more I, you know, in all different areas of my life, whether it's work, home, health even, when I get quiet and I stop trying to fill my mind with all of this information and I just trust that I know what to do, I'm able to tap into that, you know, this deeper wisdom that is always there. You know, things like meditation are great, um, you know, spending time in nature, just being happy to just be instead of always having to listen. I mean, it was great. One of the things I'd like to thank you for, Mark, because when we worked together, you reignited my love of reading and I'm a voracious reader. But I hadn't been for quite a few years sort of before working with you. And I remember driving down to see you, listening to my audiobooks on double speed, <laughs> trying to get the data in there. And it just got sort of too much. But no, I'm very happy just to drive with nothing on. You know, uh, no music on, no podcasts. I listen, you know, it's cool. But we're so... I thought you were going very risque there. No, not cl- Oh, I normally have clothes on. <laughs> 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 oh, as soon as I said that, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, a bit of tension going down the M40. Better hope the seats won't hold. Yeah, <laughs> I knew this would be moving on. So, back to being serious. Yeah, serious again. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever it is, and everyone's got their own. Thing, haven't they? Everyone's got their own way of, of, of calming down, I guess. And when we calm down, the wisdom's, it's like a, I like to think of like a balloon or a beach ball. We hold it under the water. It's trying to come up all the time. If we just let it go, it's there. Or snow globe, when we stop shaking it up, it just settles and it's, it's there. So everyone will have their own preferred ways of just quieting down and just knowing that we don't need to be running at a million miles a while, but, you know, an hour all the time. We can just calm down. And when we slow down, Often we get things done quicker anyway, because we can think more clearly. Our wisdom comes through. We listen to ourselves because we pretty much do know what to do most of the time. We kid ourselves and think that we need experts and all these other people. Again, I think one of the challenges is that very often we're looking for a quick fix or we're looking for a magic bullet. And it's really interesting because if you look at Sufism, certain uh, parts of uh, Chinese uh, Buddhism, there's this concept that in Sufism, they play very beautiful music. Mm. And uh, one of the uh, instruments is a flute called the nave. And it's cut from a reed, which is cut from the marsh. And it sounds really haunting and melancholic, and it's mm. utterly beautiful. But the Sufis say that it wants to get back, um, you know, it sounds that sound because it's longing to get back to its origin. Mm. And I remember reading um, around some Chinese Buddhism where the idea is that as you grow through life, what you're doing is you're trying to let go of all of the stuff that isn't you that you've picked up along the way. And then you're just trying to reach enlightenment by just shedding all of that. In the same way that Michelangelo, when he was asked about how he carved David from that chunk of marble, I took all the bits that weren't David away. Well, I think that's what we have to work on. And uh, certainly my training and my coaching is largely about that. It's about prevention, not cure. Because if you're trying to cure things, it's already too late. You've created the condition. So stop the problem upstream. And this is where I think we need to start reevaluating. Is more better? Because I think more is just more. And... We've got to the point now where those with seem to want so much more, but it's finite. There's 1% have got 50% of the wealth in the US. I mean, how much more do you need? Because that really is about status management, isn't it? I hear what you're saying. 
what's coming to mind for me is that obviously there's, there's wealth and there's more in terms of the finances, which is what you're talking about there. But actually, what about inner wealth? And, you know, for me, yes, there are things we need money, we need abundance in the world, we need to buy stuff and live in houses. But what I've found over the last few years is actually going inwards and finding that inner peace and that inner wealth. It's just worth so much more. So I live quite a simple life and, you know, money's great and going on holidays and stuff, but we're just going to get a puppy so we won't be going anywhere for a while. And actually less is more. And the simple sort of connection in life with other people, you know, in relationships, with relationships with ourselves, being happy with our own company. I mean, for me, the big one of the biggest treats in the world is just sitting with a book, a cup of tea, being on my own. <laughs> you know, that fills me up. And we all have these things that, that do. And if I suddenly, you know, 10 times my income tomorrow, what would my life be? It wouldn't be that different, you know? I might have a bigger house or whatever, but I wouldn't be doing doing anything that different. So I definitely agree with what you're saying about we don't always need more. It's really about the quality of our lives, the quality of our connections, our relationships, the day-to-day experience. And that comes from within anyway. You know, you get very rich people that are very unhappy and at the other end of the spectrum as well. You know, we're creating our experience every moment from the inside. And it's not the experiences outside that are giving us feelings. It's our own our own thinking, our own state of mind. And I think if people start to see that, yeah, they would, they would be more peaceful. I'd be really, really curious, and uh, I'll put myself in the firing line here, because, mm-hmm. frankly, open book. I'd love to go through a deep listening exercise so people can actually see, you know, witness it. And I'll do my best to be as open and vulnerable as I can. Okay, okay, yeah. So you want to do that now? Yeah. If, well, if you're if you're up for it, yeah, I'm up for it. Okay, yeah, absolutely fine. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is so this is your time, and let's just see what you want to share. There's no rush. Okay, okay. right, that put me in the driving seat. Okay, I'm struggling at the moment because I recognise that my time on the planet is rapidly um, coming to an end. I'm the mid fifties now. I'm not in the best of health. I am. I've finally started doing something about it, and I'm committed to doing something about it. But I'm a realist, and I've got a very limited time frame to do all the things I want to do because I reckon I've got seven years left at work, and that has to provide for me and my wife for long after I'm gone. So I'm genuinely frustrated that. I haven't done that up until now, but I do have enough time, but I want to get out of my own way because I've got a tendency to be a little bit procrastinating. So I'd love to be able to address that and have the discipline to just be consistent because in seven years, I can do an awful lot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tell me more about the frustrations that you've got. What's going on there? I've spent, a large amount of my career not being terribly good. Then I finally found something I was good at. And I treated it more like a hobby than a business, which was great fun. And it provided a pretty decent lifestyle. But I have a tendency to get stuck in my own intellectual pursuits as opposed to the job in hand. And as a result of that, I don't think I've created as stable a base as I would have liked. She's not going to starve, but she's not going to, yeah, it's not going to be a great long retirement. And I would like to be able to make sure that lifestyle isn't impinged. She doesn't need much. But as long as our lifestyle doesn't get worse than it is now, and I can protect that, that would be adequate. I'm more than happy. I'm truly happy. Mm. Okay. So there's some real um, you know, love coming through that I can hear. For your wife and for your role. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. What does your wife think about all this? Don't really know, actually. Probably a bit good idea to have a chat. <laughs> good point. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because it's, hmm, so it feels like there's the service there. 
for your for your wife. I mean, your wife sounds awful to say, but you 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 may live longer than your wife. You know, there's an assumption in there about how it's going to go. Yeah. Okay, a very unlikely statistically. <laughs> I know what you mean. If you're an actuary, you wouldn't be betting on me. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Tell me about your house. You said, I mean, I see you're drinking. I know you told me in the green room it's kale juice, which I was very impressed by. So tell me about your house and where you're at with all of that. Oh, God, years and years of neglect and self-abuse. And, and again, interestingly enough, I've been going through this process with Amal, a functional medicine practitioner. And what's been fascinating was going back through my history and understanding why I've got many of the conditions I do have started in utero because my parents grew up during the war and Malta was blockaded. So they were starved, they were bombed. My father was strafed by a, a stupid dive bomber. They had air raids They're constantly. Malta's the most bombed place on the planet still today. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I suspect Aleppo is probably getting close. But I mean, it was heavily bombed. And that's what they grew up with. So the effect of all of this on her and the effect it has on her genetics and her gut gut bacteria and her stress levels then has an effect on you. So I'm not justifying any of it, but for for the first time, it's actually explained why I've been on diet since I was three. My first diet was my mother, when I was age three, uh, coming out with a rivita and a piece of ham on it. And I looked at it and said, what's this? And she said, lunch, you're on a diet. And I felt somewhat aggrieved at that point. So it's been a constant battle. So I've had surgery, which nearly, you know, I nearly ended up dead off the back of that. And all sorts of stuff. It was just, yeah, massively invasive. But I then became very complacent about it and just thought, I've got to carry on with my life and be happy because otherwise I'd be miserable and dead, which I probably would have been if I wasn't of that mindset. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's, there's definitely, um, yeah, there's definitely sense in there for sure. And I'm sorry to hear about the the, the health challenges that you've that you've had. Uh, <laughs> self-inflicted, mostly. Yeah. Well, partly, partly not. I mean, as you sort of said, the the, the background of what you described sounds incredibly tough. I mean, the question that question that comes up: What do you want? first word that jumped to mind sadly was leave a legacy um so there's my ego popping in but I've, I've got this body of work that i genuinely believe is really very good and it's timeless because it's about human beings and i want to make that available to more people that's genuinely a passion project so at the moment i'm trying to partner up with some people who can help me pull all the podcasts and using AI, start to slice and dice it so I can um, create programs from it because there's so much good material in there. And I'd love to be able to create this resource so that it carries on long after I'm gone and well retired and then long after I'm gone. Because by the time I retire, there'll be over a thousand episodes. Are you open to a slight response to that? Yeah. Okay. That was from your head. That's your intellect. So we've got an intellectual answer. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can find an answer that's a bit deeper than that. Okay. What what do you what do you actually want? I want to have made a positive impact by the time I croak and leave the world better for me having been here instead of being ballast. I think we owe future generations to look after this place and to leave it better. And I think we've done a pretty shitty job. So I'm very angry that I see um, injustice and needless brutalization and bullying and manipulation and all this stuff going on. And I'd like people to be more decent. I'd like people to behave well. I'd like people to know that what the difference between right and wrong um, when they're in front of a customer or when they're hiring or when they're managing people and not ask people to do things that are against their best interests or are with their values. I'm offended that so many perfectly viable businesses are destroyed by greed 
and speak uh, the, the, this rush and careers are ruined and we're being you know, we're being driven into a declining economy you know then the next 50 to 100 years are going to be worse than the last 40 or 50 and that angers me and i think we should be working together what what pulled what put humanity to the top of the food chain was our ability to cooperate and solve problems together and it just seems that we're we're spending so much time fighting instead of cooperating. We can come through all of these, you know, the recessions, man-made. It's entirely uh, psychological. The bauxite hasn't evaporated from the planet. The problem is it's a mental condition, mm-hmm. and I see this everywhere. So the work that I do is really about trying to create a better future for future generations. Okay. And now turn it into you and you, Marcus, and where you figure in one because you're still talking about everybody else and what you're going to do for others. And I know that's hard sometimes. What about you? Um, well, I derive enormous satisfaction from working with people like you, people, my bucket load of clients, um, who want to behave well, who want to do the right thing. And I love working with them. I grow and um, my uh, I expand my horizons. I'm learning all the time. For me, the the most fun I have is the intersectional moments, where um, I'm working with someone who comes from a different perspective or I disagree with, and because we've rubbed up against each other, that friction's created something better. And I'm not attached to whether I was right or wrong anymore. I used to be, but it. Well, probably still am, but it's it's just lovely when every day is about learning, expanding, stretching, being able to do things better. The refinement I like. Yeah, it's that it's that constant finessing. Enlightened now. Still feels like. Still feels like it's about others. And you talked about your wife, and you talked about your clients, and you talked about the wider world and the legacy that you want to leave. What about you? What about your deepest desires and what you actually want out of life? It's a lot of service. It's a lot of giving that you're talking about. And I don't know where you fit in it all. I'd, well, I would like to travel more, and I'd like the business to be able to fund that, I guess. Okay. And ultimately i'd love to live somewhere preferably with no neighbors not that our neighbors are bad but i just want to live with open spaces big skies and suzanne won't let me move until i get healthy because she's worried that we won't have any ambulance picking me up <laughs> <laughs> and so and at and with what I do, I could be anywhere on the planet. It doesn't make any difference. And I, I don't like where we are, but it's convenient. And my youngest is still at school. Yeah. So until she finishes, um, we can't move. But that's only two years away. Not even that. It's a year and a half. So if I can pull my finger out, then there's no reason why we couldn't be anywhere. You've got sort of desires that, that I hear that are just for you. And I think when when you're a provider, when you're a parent, a business owner, a partner, you know, you're always looking after all these other people in your life. And what a wonderful job you've done of providing for your family, you know. And you said that there could be more, but, you know, you've had a lovely life from from what I can tell. And I think it is a time. My husband's a similar age to you. I think he's 56 and he's sort of thinking about retirement and, it's hard to think about ourselves sometimes when all we've done is just served other people, you know, and provided for other people. But I, I would just love you to to ponder what you what you really want, and when we find what we really want, motivation and hard work and procrastination, they don't really figure. They're just it's like with me knowing what I'm doing now. I don't need to be motivated to do it. It's like literally my most favourite conversation that I could possibly have. So it's like, it's not really like work. And I'm sure there's bits of what you do that are like that, that are super enjoyable. Well, no, my, my work is all like that. I mean, I can't remember the last day. The, the last day I worked was about 2004. Yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. 
Yeah. But I still feel like it's what I've heard from what you've said is that it feels like it's hmm, what's the best way to say it? Overemphasized. <sighs> yeah. Or what are trying to say? That it's a means to an end, although it's enjoyable. But what if you you what if I mean the what if the purpose is you? It's not just then for other people. Does that make sense? So like if it's literally for you, and then other people will benefit. If you're doing what's right for you, then it will benefit your wife, it will benefit your family. But where do you fit in it? You and your wants and your true desires. Feels like they're not really front of mind. They haven't really been considered in all of this. No. I always consider myself to be quite selfish because, yeah, if I want something, I get it. If I do something you know if I want to do something I generally do it yeah but I do feel that constraint not constraint I feel that obligation to put others first and rightly I think rightly so um because I think my needs most of my fundamental needs are being met I don't get to travel and that will be on my deathbed that will be a regret I'm sure I really want to travel more I'd love to go and see interesting places, meet different people. And I'm, it feels like I've wasted that. Mm. Yeah. I'd quite like to go back and study again, but um, I'm not that keen. I, I don't know. I'd like to study. I'm not that sure I want a degree. Yeah. Um, although it might just be that I want to be a student again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can understand. Curry for breakfast. <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely yeah <laughs> so what's to, where are the top places in your mind that you would want to travel to i'd love to go to china i'd love to go to vietnam korea i'd love to go there's very parts of africa that i've got no idea about and south america i think europe would be fascinating as well I'm not that interested in most of North America and Canada, perhaps. I mean, that's certainly got big spaces. Uh, maybe a move there. Australia, I'd love to go to. I think from a boat, the, one of the poles, but not necessarily too much walking on there. And some <laughs> <they're small. laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So probably Arctic rather than Antarctic. I mean, I'd like to see big icebergs and you know, whales and things. But having the dog the last few weeks has been really good fun because going out and walking, I'd forgotten how much I loved um, being out in nature. And that was something I don't want to let go of. Uh, so after this, I think I might go for a walk. Yeah, uh, wonderful. <laughs> Is that a new dog that you've got? No, it's my daughter's hearing dog, but it's gone back to university with her. So um, oh. uh, we're feeling deprived. Oh. Although we won't miss the slobber or the hair or the, the sound. <laughs> yes, well, I've got all that to come with this puppy we're getting. So how can you make that happen? The travel that you just described. Well, I have to enlist Suzanne in this because um, unless I orchestrate work trips if she doesn't want to come. But I'd like us to be able to go off on long trips. And I can do, I can do my work from anywhere with a computer and then the internet. I need to plan a trip, I guess. That would be the thing. I'm uh, tying with the idea of going to the Hebrides, which on a walking holiday, which I've never even contemplated before. Yeah, no, sorry, I think I'll do that. Sounds wonderful. Sounds wonderful. And it'd be great to find out what, what, what Suzanne thinks, not just about the holidays and the travel, but what does, what's, what does she wonder of your retirement together and your life and what's important to her? And, you know, imagine that you're pretty important in, in that and pretty high up the food chain, maybe even higher up than you are in your own list. You know, you may be higher up her list. I don't know. It'd be interesting to talk about that. Use maybe some of your wonderful listening skills to to find out what what's important to her. There may be more crossover than you don't think. We just don't know, and it's amazing what comes out when we actually just ask. I need to be a better husband and listen more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when we do this sort of work, and I definitely have been 
very poor at listening to Bob. And he'll say to me, oh, no, you listen to your plumbing clients all day and all these people that you meet in, whereas I'm, you know, just on my phone or whatever. So I really consciously now, isn't it the ultimate compliment in life to put your phone down <laughs> in a conversation? Yeah, that was a blind spot for me. Listen to everybody else. But when did I really listen to him? And I'm getting better at it. But yeah, it's awful. That's salutary. Okay, well, thank you for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bestie Donaldson, how can people get a hold of you? The best way to get hold of me is my email address, which is hello at beshley.coach, beshley, B-E-S-H-L-I-E. Or I've got a link tree, which is linktree slash beshley.coach. All my links are on there. Excellent. And what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to to get better at this thing? The Ultimate Coach is the name of the book. The subtitle is Being. It's Amy Hardison, H-A-R-D-I-S-O-N. And co-author was Alan D. Thompson. It's about the life and work of Steve Hardison, who is called The Ultimate Coach. And its subtitle is The Book of Being. And it's about, well, there's a lot in there about deep listening, but it's about change at the level of being instead of change at the level of doing. And, you know, when we think about who we are being in relation to a scenario or a situation, it's a very good way to tap into a, an internal state. You know, I might say, who do I need to be to listen deeply to this client with my whole being? You know, who do I need to be to give this person the most profound experience of listening that they've ever experienced in their whole lives? Or who do I need to be to get my kids to brush their teeth and get us out of the house this morning and get to school? Right. Okay. I'm going to do that then. And it's just... It's a wonderful book. It's part sort of about that guy, but also the stories. There's people like Ilana Van Zandt wrote the foreword to it. There's quite a few sort of people in there that people may have heard of. So that's worth a look for sure. In terms of watching, there's a wonderful film called Finding Joe. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on YouTube, so it's freely available. It's about Joseph Campbell, who... Oh, right. Yeah. Find Your Bliss. And the hero's journey. Exactly, exactly. So it's wonderful. There's some brilliant people in there, like Deepak Chopra's in it, Gay Hendricks, various people sharing their stories. And it's a wonderful one to think about what we want. And actually, Marcus, you would probably enjoy watching that based on the conversation that we've had about what you really want. So that's definitely... Have you uh, listened to Myths to Live By? by No, I haven't. That is a fantastic book. Really fantastic. So uh, you can read the uh, audio. Yeah, yeah, great. Oh, I've got a credit, actually. Well, uh, Myths to Live By. Yeah, Myths to Live By. Brilliant. I will check that out. And then, yeah, to listen to, there's a wonderful audio by Steve Chandler, which is called Expectations Versus Agreements. I think it's readily available on his website. Anyone can reach out to me, actually, at that email address, and I have permission to share this audio. It's a 30-minute audio. And it's about how life runs so much better when we make agreements with people instead of having expectations. It's really, really quality and, uh, you know, work in life. Agreements are creative. People have to create them together. And people generally give their word, like in The Godfather. (laughs) It's true. Even my little kids, I get them to give their word. We're going to the park. Right, let's make an agreement. When I say it's time to go, we're going to go. Pinky promise. Right then they do. I mean, it's not, you know, foolproof, still got some resistance, but basically they will keep their word and people do. So yeah, it's been, it's something that I get all my clients to listen to. That's really interesting. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot bestie age 23. uh, (laughs) What one choice bit of advice would you give her? Just start your first business way sooner. You know, I think I worked for the first recruitment company, which was great, actually. I met my husband there. I learned a lot. I was there for longer than I needed to be. And I should have just set up on my own. As soon as I kind of knew the basics, which is not it's not rocket science recruitment, you know, once I knew how to place people and win business, I should have got out and learned along the way. When I did start my first business, which was about 10 years ago, actually, yeah, I made loads of mistakes, but, you know, I learned along the way. And if I'd done that 10 years earlier, you know, where would I be? And yeah, just don't be afraid when you're young to make mistakes. That's the time to make them before you've got the responsibilities. And, you know, uh, before they're really expensive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So 
just get out there and, and get stuck in and hire a coach as well. I would say hire a coach sooner or later. You were actually the first coach I ever hired, Marcus. So it's your fault that I'm here. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm I'm very glad that you did because you've turned the corner remarkably well. And uh, I'm so delighted with where you are. It's just a wonderful thing to see. So thank you. Thank you. It was it was just a wonderful experience working with you. It was just hilarious. So I just moved away from Maidenhead up to Derby and then I started traveling to see you just outside Maidenhead every two weeks. It was crazy. But got a lot of got a lot of audiobooks listened to in the car. But yeah, it's wonderful to be <laughs> Marcus. And thank you so much that you, you know, for everything you've done for me, for everything you do for everybody in, in your world and all, you know, sales of force for good and you know, the, the the passion that you have for helping salespeople to operate you know, ethically and do things in the right way. It's it's a wonderful service to, to humanity and um, be interested to see where you get to. And you, when you start putting yourself at the centre of that, yeah, be interested to see. <laughs> Bestie Donaldson, thank you very much. Thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus County Weepy um, signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. This has been emotional. Thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed it, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, comment, send Bestie some thoughts on the episode. And if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. I work with principle-centered sellers who operate in an unprincipled world. Sometimes they're being asked to do things and they know they're not in their customer's best interest and they're being asked to do it anyway. If you want to work out how to navigate your way through that process so that you can either carry on where you are, so you can either carry on where you are or you can decide how you can exit and find a better place for yourself, uh, then please get in touch. Marcus at laughsightandlast.com or follow the link below. Speak to you soon. Take care. Have fun. Stay safe. Happy set. Bye-bye.